0: Thanks, CP. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would speak to us through this, your word, that we might live by grace and bring glory to Jesus. Amen. I think there are some words that deserve to be used far more than they actually are. Words like eschew or irascible. I actually have a list, you know. It includes glum ingress, bombast, surreptitious. There are a lot more, but I'll forego sharing them with you for now. Because far more importantly, there are some words which I think need to shape the way in which we approach ministry. If we're to serve the Lord Jesus in a way which actually fits with what he said to us in the Bible, and this morning we're going to look at four of those words which sum up the message of Galatians 2, 1 to 14, with the aim of making sure that these words are embedded in our hearts and minds as we serve Jesus now and keep pressing on with him for the rest of our lives. What are they? I'll tell you up front. They're partnership, clarity, realism, and courage. Paul, along with Barnabas, may have planted the churches in Galatia, but that didn't stop them listening to, the, to those agitators who had all kinds of things to say about Paul after he left. They said he was out of step with Jerusalem, which is why Paul talks about gospel partnership. They said his message was mixed up, which is why Paul focuses on gospel clarity. They said he wasn't a pillar of the church, which is why Paul talks about gospel realism. And most bizarrely of all, they said Paul was a people pleaser who was soft in the gospel, which is why he talks about gospel courage. So together, let's listen to God's word through Paul. As first he calls us to commit to gospel partnership in verses 1 and 2. Paul's second trip to Jerusalem comes many years after his initial get-to-know-you visit with Peter, which we touched on last week. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, it's interesting that Paul makes it really clear that he wasn't summoned by the apostles to explain what he was doing. He wasn't called in so that they could check his orthodoxy or approve the content of his preaching. He took the initiative to go to them. Why did he do it? He says he went in response to a revelation. Now, this isn't Paul's main point here, but we do need to take it seriously. Remember, our God is the all powerful, speaking, intervening, directing God, and here he steps in to tell Paul to do something specific. In Acts 11, Luke describes a visit to Jerusalem to help relieve hunger in the city, which was prompted by a message from the prophet Agabus. Paul may be talking about that, or, and I think this is more likely, this is a separate direction from God. He gives him a revelation. No, we don't get any more than that, but we don't get any less. It doesn't say that after talking to his team, he was persuaded that this was a strategic move. You might prefer it if it said that, but it doesn't. It says, I went up because of a revelation. We mustn't be embarrassed by the fact that our God is a powerful God. And at key moments in history, and in particular key moments in the advance of his kingdom, our God is very happy to intervene. And this was a key moment in the life of the early church. There was a lot riding on this trip. Paul needed to know that if his work in Galatia and elsewhere, out of Antioch, and that of the 12 in and around Jerusalem, was in step. John Stott captures the issue like this Was their mission big enough to see the gospel of Christ not as a reform movement within Judaism? but is good news for the whole world and the church of Christ as the international family of God. And God intervenes to help Paul get the answer he and ultimately the whole of the church needs. So while there's no license to take this verse as a guarantee that the heavenly host will show up to tell us when it's time to go to Coles, it is a timely reminder that our God is big enough, sovereign enough, powerful enough, to do some supernatural things in order to advance the kingdom. So Paul goes up to make sure that I wasn't running or had not run in vain. Now, in the light of everything he'd said in chapter 1, there is no way that Paul is in any doubt that he might have got the gospel wrong. Paul has said, I got the gospel directly from the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, and I'm not about to change my message for anyone, even those who seem to be influential. We'll come back to that in a moment. His overwhelming concern is the forward momentum of the mission of God. See, Paul knows that if at this key point in the emerging mission of the church, remember we're just before Acts 15, if this gospel movement splits into Jewish and Gentile versions, it will never have the impact that it could and should have. In particular, that the church planting movement in Galatia will split into Jewish churches and Gentile churches. Paul knows it will strike a body blow to the work of the kingdom. All that he and Barnabas and so many others have done will take a fatal hit, never to recover. So he takes the initiative to make sure that he's working in real, meaningful gospel partnership with the apostles back in Jerusalem. He's committed, completely committed to ensuring that his mission flowing west from Antioch towards the Mediterranean is in step with that in Jerusalem. See, for Paul, gospel partnership matters. You can see that's his concern so clearly. And from verse 7, when they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. It's a mark of real maturity to be able to recognize when God is at work through someone else. But that's exactly what happens when Paul goes to Jerusalem. They, they each recognize that God is working through the other, among the Gentiles through Paul and the Jews through Peter. Now, the language is pretty general here. Paul's not saying that he checked whether people were circumcised or not before he shared the good news to them, or that he would say, hands off, if he ever caught Peter talking to a Gentile. Rather, they were concerned to make sure they were on the same page that their philosophy of ministry was in step and that their efforts to reach the world for Christ were coordinated rather than interfering with each other. This is about gospel partnership, a partnership that's sealed and summed up by that gloriously strange phase, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, still used in every Presbyterian <laughs> ordination. <laughs> After a new minister is inducted or someone is ordained, the moderator has to announce as a sign of our partnership in the gospel, we will now give them the right hand of fellowship. Sounds a bit odd, but it's, it's funny because a firm handshake doesn't really cover it. This is a serious, official expression of working together in gospel partnership, and it's a beautiful thing. Now, in one sense, Paul's extended defense of his ministry against the Galatian agitators, as he underlines that he and the apostles back in Jerusalem are in lockstep, is quite a way removed from the challenges that we face as we think about serving Jesus now and in the years to come. But at another level, Paul's divinely instigated actions here are a clear summons for us to commit to a rich and lifelong partnership in the gospel. See, these slightly tense encounters in the earliest days of the church really matter because they make a couple of things so clear. The first is that we're in it together. See, it's not really an option to act as if we're the only people who know Jesus and love the gospel and want to see people come to know him. We actually belong to each other. We can't just ignore our brothers and sisters. What we're doing depends on and affects their ministry, and what they're doing depends on and affects us. We need to be able to recognize that God is at work in other people and pray for them and work in concert with them for the sake of the kingdom. For we're in this together. These verses also make it clear that we need each other. No local church or denomination or movement or network is ever going to be able to reach our community or our city or our nation, let alone our world on its own. It's so easy to slip into thinking like this, to get so caught up in what we're doing that it becomes as if the work of the kingdom depends on our ministry and our ministry alone. But it's just not the case. I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes the Spirit seems to work through people and organizations which we would really prefer him not to, whose priorities aren't quite as strategic, whose theology isn't as crystal clear, whose philosophy of ministry isn't as thought out as ours. And it even turns out that sometimes we have things to learn from them. (laughs) That's really important. I hope you can see why we need to commit to gospel partnership. We actually need to do it for our sake and the sake of our brothers and sisters and for the sake of the kingdom. So right now, I'd urge you that whatever ministries we end up being part of, whichever church we belong to, whichever networks we sign up to, let's make sure that we're always open to looking for gospel partnerships in our community and region and nation, because ultimately the cause of the gospel trumps all our secondary allegiances. But just before we move on, we need to deal with a strange little add-on in verse 10. Did you even notice that, as CP read? Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. It would be easy to miss this, skip over it, but I actually think it underlines the powerful point that Paul's making about gospel partnership. Now, at this age, it's pretty obvious that Paul's focus is firmly on ensuring the gospel of justification by faith alone is proclaimed and modeled to Gentile and Jew alike, and particularly that the Galatians don't walk away from that gospel or from him. He doesn't really seem overly concerned about anybody going hungry. But that's when his co-workers in Jerusalem remind him of a key implication of the gospel. They urge him to remember the poor. The apostles in Jerusalem are probably thinking of the Christians in their own city who are doing it tough. So they say, Paul, remember the poor. So what does Paul say? Talk to someone else about that. I'm the justification by faith alone guy, not the feed the hungry man. Well, not quite. <laughs> he actually says, absolutely. <laughs> I'm already on to it. In fact, we read in Acts 11 how the church in Antioch had sent Paul and Barnabas with money to, to, to help these very people. But this comment from Jerusalem helped keep Antioch in track in living out the gospel. This is gospel partnership in action where we help each other to hold on to and live out the truth which does raise a question. Who's telling us to remember the poor? I think this little aside just raises something we need to think about before we kind of get on to the main flow of Paul's argument. When was the last time you heard anyone in college or in your church or the ministries you've been involved in? When was the last time you heard someone from the front at a gospel-centered conference you've you've been at say, make sure you remember the poor? In the circles I move in, we don't talk about this much at all. Why is that? I suspect it's partly because we're rich Australians. Makes it relatively easy to ignore the poor. I think it's partly because we're here at Theological College and the people who care most about the poor actually tend to be out there doing stuff for them rather than in here writing assignments about it. I think it's also because as evangelicals in Australia, we've been so focused in the recent past on recovering and guarding and proclaiming the truth of the gospel that any mention of implications of the gospel like caring for the poor, has got a bit lost. Or being dismissed as a waste of time at best or the thin end of a wedge that will lead us into liberalism at worst. Which is why we need other voices. It's why we need a partnership in the gospel that's rich and thick, which brings us into contact with brothers and sisters beyond our normal circles who won't just say what we're saying and what we like to hear. My friend Henry is a rural evangelist in his home country of Myanmar. Henry emails me every two or three weeks with news and photos of his ministry. You know, the people who've been baptized in the latest village that he's visiting. A couple of months ago, his email contained a sentence which brought me up short. He just said, in Australia, I guess you can go straight to telling people the gospel. Here, where people are starving, we need to feed them first. (laughs) We need brothers and sisters, like Henry, (laughs) to help us remember the poor as together we take the gospel to the world. So commit, commit to gospel partnership. That's the first word, partnership. The second is clarity. One of the standout things about Paul's account of the events, both in Jerusalem and then back home in Antioch, is the clarity with which he sees the issues. Seems like everyone else is stumbling around, oblivious to the long-term consequences of what's happening, not joining the theological dots. But Paul is so concerned for the gospel, so attuned to the issues, so aware of the theological impact of what's happening, that he cuts through all the confusion with a staggering precision. Take a trip to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus, for example. Now, it's hard to say, but I'm pretty sure that Paul took Titus along to check that those in church in Jerusalem really had got the fact that the world had changed with Jesus' death and resurrection, that they had got the fact that in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. And the great news was that the church in Jerusalem passed that test with flying colors. When it came to welcoming Titus, no issue. Verse 3, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Those living in Jerusalem and those visiting with Paul were in complete agreement, We're saved by grace alone, no need for circumcision, no need to start keeping Torah. Titus, come in and pull up a chair. It's the same message. Everyone's on the same page. It's what happens next that causes the problems. Turns out that what the troublemakers were saying back in Galatia wasn't really anything new. Because Paul had heard it all before, years earlier in Jerusalem. Verse 4: Because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. Now, at this point, it seems that Paul is getting a bit emotional. Lightfoot calls his grammar here a shipwreck, but it's almost certainly because he's so disturbed by what he saw unfolding in front of him. Paul calls these interlopers false brothers. He shines a light on their sneaky, manipulative approach, but most of all, he identifies their goal with real clarity. He says they are trying to lead God's people back into slavery. I'm sure they didn't use those words. They probably said something like, of course all Christians should eat kosher food. Must have sounded pretty plausible in a room full of Jewish Christians. Makes sense for Christians to be circumcised. Aren't we God's people after all? It almost sounds persuasive. But Paul says, no. That's the road to slavery. That's incipient legalism. I can add incipient to the list at the start. (laughs) But Paul spots it. We need to be able to do the same. You see, the key to negotiating the messy realities of church in the first century and the 21st century is to prioritize gospel clarity. There is a reason why here at college we invest so heavily in learning to read, exegete the text carefully and pushing you to think biblical theologically, learning to build a rich systematic theology from Scripture. It's why we make you reflect on the missteps and the triumphs across all of church history. It's why we push you to think through the issues raised by philosophy and ethics. It's why we want you to think through while you're here what ministry looks like in practice. It's not because we're into learning for the sake of learning. It's because we desperately want you to be able to see clearly To be able to keep your head in every relational conflict, to think theologically in every heated discussion about ministry, to see past strong personalities and powerful words to the truth behind what's being said, and to be able to discern why, above all, to see the consequences of every decision and every action. We want you to be able to bring the same kind of gospel clarity and understanding to the mess of church life and ministry that Paul does here, to make sure the gospel stays front and center, that it's always the the pulsating heart of every church, every ministry we're part of for the rest of our lives. Trouble is, of course, that this is more easily said than done. See, this part of Galatians warns us that it's particularly easy for people like us to slip into some form of legalism or another. Now, you may not feel particularly legalistic this morning. You may not even think that legalism would make it onto your list of top three theological dangers that you're prone to. Just stop there for a minute. One of the more common diagnostic signs of legalism is a whiff of pride in our hearts and minds. So you think you aren't a legalist? Just take a second to sniff the aroma of your heart this morning. Can you pick up faint overtones of any of these? Taking pride in our theological orthodoxy. Taking pride in the fact that we're a free thinker who won't be boxed. Taking pride in the level of our training. Taking pride in the fact that we're self-taught. Taking pride in our grades. Taking pride in the fact that we don't care about our grades. Taking pride in the way we care for people. Taking pride in the fact that we're focused on the gospel, which is what people really need. Taking pride in the fact that others think well of us. Taking pride in the fact that we don't care what other people think of us. Taking pride in the fact we always do our duties. Taking pride in the fact that we don't feel guilty when we don't do our duties because we're living by grace taking pride in the fact that we're not proud. Here's what Luther says in a stunning statement in his commentary. The difference between the law and the gospel is very necessary to be known, for it contains the sum of all Christian doctrine. Then he says this. For touching the words, law and gospel, the distinction's easy. But in a time of temptation, you shall find the gospel a stranger and a rare guest in your conscience. But the law, you will find a familiar and continual dweller within you. For our reason, knows the law naturally. I once heard Tim Keller sum up that statement by saying legalism is the default mode of the human heart. See, this passage actually warns us that when we're tired or under pressure or trying to impress or relaxing, the danger is that we lose our grip on the gospel and slide inexorably into legalism. Which is why one of our great needs is to develop and prioritize gospel clarity, which will enable us to see ourselves and other people and what's going on in front of our eyes clearly. So commit to gospel partnership, prioritize gospel clarity, and then thirdly, perhaps surprisingly, practice gospel realism. We've already seen now in verse 2, Paul speaks about those who seemed influential. Now look with me again at how he refers to the leaders of the Jerusalem church from verse 6. Those who seem to be influential, again, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. They, they didn't tell him more about the gospel. Verse 9, when James and, and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, and so on. What's going on here? Paul seems to have a very particular take on the practice of calling, of the, calling the leaders of the church in Jerusalem pillars. What's his take? I think he thinks it's a really bad idea. It may have been started by people who like the fact that in the same way the old covenant was kicked off with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now God was building his church in Jerusalem on Peter, John, and James, Jesus' brothers. They're the pillars. Or the term pillar may have been associated with the idea that God was building a new temple and that these three who'd been around from the beginning of Jesus' ministry were a key part of the construction. But wherever it started, to quote Tom Schreiner, Paul wasn't starry-eyed and didn't venerate the pillars on the basis of their past experience or anything else. He just says God is never moved by human status, and nor should we be. Now, of course, there are plenty of places in the New Testament where we're called to submit to those placed in authority over us in the Lord. Generally, those are elders in the local church. But Paul's making a different point here. Yeah, respect your leaders, but be very careful about building them up. In this case, just because they were with Jesus doesn't mean they get everything right, which the Gospels are very quick to point out. Just because someone gives a good Bible talk or leads a flourishing ministry, let's not get carried away. "Let's we should be impartial, for God shows no partiality. I think really what Paul's saying here is when it comes to leaders, we need to be realistic. Sooner or later, everyone will let the side down. Every leader is ultimately a disappointment. Everyone has their bad days. Calling your leaders pillars? Building on them? Not a good idea, Paul says, because sooner or later, if we build on leaders, everything will come crashing down. Now, of course, Paul's fighting for the hearts and minds of the Galatians matters desperately to him that they accept his gospel, but it's only because it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants the Galatians to pay attention to his authority, but only because that authority has been given to him, delegated to him by the Lord Jesus himself. Paul's consistent view of leadership is expressed at the start of 1 Corinthians 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. But don't call me or anyone else a pillar. When it comes to starting to trust leaders, Paul gets very nervous. Martin Luther writes this. So the prince, the magistrate, the preacher, the schoolmaster, the scholar, the father, the mother, the children, the master, the servant, are people which God will have us to acknowledge, love, reverence his creatures, which we all need in this life. But he will not have us worship them. That is to reverence them that we trust them and forget Him. We need to be realistic when it comes to our leaders. We must never, ever allow them to ascend to the level in our minds that they're beyond question. Because even the best of us make mistakes. We all need to be held to a kind. That's why Paul doesn't like the idea of calling them pillars. He's no issue with them as individuals. They're his partners in the gospel, but he knows they are made of the same stuff as him and everybody else. In the last few years, you know, there have been a spate of leadership failures in the evangelical world, both globally and closer to home. I'm not saying it's a whole story, but there's one common theme. It always ends badly when leaders are put on a pedestal and treated as if normal rules don't apply. Because, well, you know, they're pillars, aren't they? A friend of mine some years ago got a call before a famous pastor's visit to Australia in 2008 to remind him that Pastor X only travels first class. Apparently, normal rules didn't apply. When one international speaker's team insisted on masseuses being available in every place, No one batted an eyelid because normal rules didn't apply. When all kinds of aggressive and manipulative behavior is excused in all kinds of places on the basis of giftedness or brilliance or strategic insight, it's like the normal standards of character and godliness just don't apply. Because these people are pillars, aren't they? But Paul's utterly realistic. Pillars are made of the same stuff as the rest of us. They get things spectacularly wrong too. As Peter did, as we'll see in a moment from verse 11. But let's make sure we've got this. It's deeply unhelpful. It's not gospel-shaped to show someone respect on the basis of which theological college they went to. Even if it's QTC. It's deeply unhelpful and not really gospel-shaped to show someone respect on the basis of which church they've been part of or even planted. It's deeply unhelpful to show someone respect on the basis of which conferences they've been to or even spoken at. On the basis of which books they've read, the theological terms they can bandy around, the academic qualifications they have, who they know, who their trainer was. We could go on and on. We're not to relate to people on the basis of connections or achievements. We're to treat each other as brothers and sisters, fellow forgiven sinners, who, as we pray are quick to repent, slow to speak, even if we're Lecturers. We are to submit to those appointed to care for us and hold us accountable in the basis of their life and doctrine, to imitate them as they imitate Christ, to follow them as they follow Christ. But we're to be realistic in our expectations, for sooner or later, even the best will let the side down. So be realistic about yourself and the people alongside you and about our leaders because we're all capable of making terrible decisions at very short notice. I reckon a fair assessment of my performance as a leader, and actually most leaders I know, most days would be, he really should have known better. So let's practice gospel realism, which brings us to the last word. Verses 11 to 14, we do have to show gospel courage. Remember that when Paul writes this letter, which may well have been his first, he's a bit of an outsider. He's not from Jerusalem. He wasn't one of the 12. He didn't meet Jesus before his death and resurrection. He has a painful past. He tried to obliterate the church. He's been well outside the loop in Damascus and then in Petra for years, and then suddenly he finds himself in Jerusalem coming under sustained pressure. Sounds like a great recipe for feeling insecure and slinking back to Antioch with his tail between his legs. But he doesn't do that. Not only does he see the theological issues clearly, he refuses to budge one inch on the gospel. He shows real gospel courage. Go back to verse five. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. It's actually literally an R, which was the. Smallest division of time in the first century. Not a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. It's not a marvelous sentence? It's not a selfish thing for Paul. It's not about ego. It's about the Galatians and the Ephesians and the Corinthians and everyone else he will have and has had the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to. When the message is at stake, he won't back down, even if it means facing up to the apostle Peter himself. See, it is part of gospel ministry to make sure that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for people in our care. I don't know if you've noticed it, but people have all kinds of suggestions and opinions about life in church and youth group and growth group and every ministry in and outside church. How they could be made so much better. Those suggestions come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, from insightful and brilliant through those that are fairly harmless and a matter of preference to those that are downright dangerous and will undermine the gospel if we pick them up. It's the job of leaders to work out which is which and then for the sake of God's people to weed out those which are corrosive to the gospel. And that takes courage because most of us, are people pleasers to some degree. But look at verses 11 to 14. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was living like a Gentile, eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Antioch by this age was the third city in the Roman Empire, second only to Alexandria and Rome herself. According to Acts 11, the persecution that arose after Stephen's martyrdom propelled the gospel to this city of about half a million people, and soon a vibrant church had sprung up. Doug Moose says the church was a lab for Jew-Gentile relations. As together in Antioch, these new believers worked out beautifully how to live together for the glory of Jesus. Barnabas was one of the key leaders. Barnabas then went to Tarsus to bring Paul to be part of the team at Antioch. It was the church in Antioch that sent Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel to Galatia. No wonder Peter came from Jerusalem to see for himself what was going on which was where things went rapidly pear-shaped because he may have been a pillar, but he, he got this one spectacularly wrong. Initially, Peter, it seems, loves living like a Gentile, happily rubbing shoulders with everyone, eating as much seafood as he can handle. Then he does a spectacular backflip. He comes under pressure from men who say they're from James, although James himself in Acts 15 says he didn't send them. He gets scared. He acts hypocritically. He starts acting in a way which just didn't fit what he believes, what he'd experienced when God appeared to him in that vision of the house of Simon the Tanner, sent him to Cornelius' house in Acts 10 and 11. Peter even manages to trip up Barnabas, who seems to be just about the nicest guy in the New Testament. He causes utter chaos. Peter, Barnabas, the Jewish Christians choose the safety of the crowd rather than the path of gospel-shaped obedience. They go with the flow rather than standing for the truth. Now, we don't know exactly why they did it. It's probably for the sake of their brothers back in Jerusalem who are coming under pressure from the right-wing circumcision party. A group of Jews who are putting Jewish Christians under pressure for betraying the nation. It's understandable in a way, but they seem to have forgotten the bit where Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But trying to avoid persecution is never a good idea. They were actually willing to compromise the whole mission of God to make their mates back home a bit more comfortable. They chose approval from other people rather than resting in God's prepared approval in Christ. And if I can say this gently, if Peter and Barnabas can do that, then so can we. But it falls to Paul to stand up to them. Ironically, in Galatia, the word was that Paul had understood the message of the gospel and that he was soft on truth. (laughs) They were wrong. (laughs) It's the apostles who've gone soft on the gospel. They're the ones who backtracked. So Paul cuts straight to the the heart of the issue and puts a name on it. Verse 14, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You're being a hypocrite. And remember, this was pretty public, but it had to be because when Peter backtracked on eating with Gentiles, it was a very public statement. It jeopardized the whole mission of God. And Paul fronts up to him, and says, Peter, you are not ortho-walking, is what he says. You've lost the plot. You've obscured the gospel. Sometimes we have to do that. Sometimes you'll need to show real gospel courage, and so will I. To point out that people aren't actually living in the way that fits with what they say they believe. To draw attention to the fact that people are speaking or living in ways that denigrate the gospel which they say they hold to. To do that, we really will need to show real gospel courage. The irascible Martin Luther says, finally, our stoutness in the matter of the gospel is godly and holy. For by it we seek to preserve our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus and thereby to retain the truth of the gospel, which if we lose, we lose God, we lose Christ, we lose the promises, we lose faith, righteousness, and everlasting life. Sometimes I let my mind wander. I dream of the ideal QTC graduate. Let me tell you what she or he is like. Soft hearted, open, generous, theologically thought through on every important issue, yet deeply committed to working with like minded brothers and sisters that together we might see the cause of the gospel in Queensland and beyond flourish. He's utterly gospel hearted aware of our tendency to pride and hubris and smugness, pursuing humility. She's both respectful of those in authority over us and also completely realistic about the weakness of every leader. And they're fearless, ready to stand where necessary to fight, taking on all comers where the truth of the gospel is being obscured, overturned or distorted for the sake of the people whom we serve. Is that far-fetched? I think not. If in the light of Galatians 2 and in the strength which God himself has already given us in the Lord Jesus, we commit to gospel partnership, We prioritize gospel clarity. We model gospel realism and show gospel courage. Then in the years to come, wherever God leads us, however his mission advances, the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ will be well served in this place and far beyond. Let's pray together. Lord, work in us, we pray, that we might be people who spend ourselves to ensure that the gospel rings clearly and truly in your church and across this land and across our world for the glory of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray.